Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Like I said, we'll be in the last uh, portion of 1 Kings chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 25. But uh, last week we uh, were left looking at the southern kingdom. The the kingdom is now divided uh, in two, the ten tribes to the north, the two tribes to the south. Uh, Judah underneath Rehoboam, and and he was ready to go and attack the uh, northern kingdom of Israel underneath uh, Jeroboam. Um, but uh, the man of God, uh, Shemaiah, uh, comes to tell Rehoboam that this has come from the hand of the Lord. That this did not come by chance, uh, but this thing is from the Lord. Now, what happened in that, quite surprising, which, what's quite shocking when we consider uh, where we are, and uh, even if we've read even just a small portion of the Bible, that uh, the prophet is heard. Uh, the prophet is listened to, and Rehoboam uh, packs up his stuff, swallows his pride, and ends up uh, returning home. They listened. Um, but now, we kind of switch now to the northern kingdom underneath uh, Jeroboam, uh, Israel, and uh, we'll find that as we go through First and Second Kings, it kind of switches back and forth. There's a focus on the northern kingdom, or there's a focus on the southern kingdom. There's, there's times in which the, the stories overlap, and we see that uh, happen. But it's, it's hard to keep track of, north and south, and, and uh, you know where we are in the timeline, as, as we kind of looked a couple of weeks ago at how we kind of get to the dating of all this. But uh, here... We're still early in the, the kingdoms, you know, the kingdom divides around 931. So we're early in this process. It's still pretty easy to keep track, Rehoboam and, and Jeroboam. Uh, it's still confusing, though. There's uh, two Jeroboams, the first and the second. There's Rehoboam and Jeroboam, both very similar names. So it can get a little bit confusing, but hopefully we'll be able to understand where we're at. But we're in the northern kingdom underneath Jeroboam. And uh, as we come to the end of chapter 12... Uh, the kingdoms are now, in fact, divided. There's, there's no coming back at this point. There's times uh, in the future where it seems that there, there are more uh, friendships, alliances formed between them. Uh, it seems that, that, uh, that there's this kind of discussion, but, but really from this point, they're, they're always going to be divided. Um, so now the question is, what's going to happen? What are these two kingdoms going to look like? What are these two kings going to look like as they rule? Uh, you know, the, the first hundred days in office is, is something that is talked about. A uh, big talking point after a president is inaugurated. Well, what are they going to do in those first hundred days? Those first hundred days hope to be able to set the, the momentum, the, 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 the change. Now, in uh, Jeroboam, in the northern kingdom, his hundred days now, we don't know particularly if they're 100 days, but this is kind of what it's like. The author is setting us up to be able to explain what is Jeroboam's reign going to be like? What is it going to be like in, under the administration of Jeroboam? Now, before we get into the details of what Jeroboam does, we need to understand something that the uh, author tells us, either Shemaiah or uh, Idu, the, the prophet who was recording this and writing this down for us and and our, our help and our aid. Uh, this passage really is about one man, Jeroboam. It, it's the focus of all of this, this passage. The focus is on the king. Now, 
Israel would be affected from this. All these things will, will happen from this one man's actions here. And, and before we get into the detail, even if we're just to glance through this, we see quite clearly the author highlights that this is all of Jeroboam's doing. Jeroboam uh, built. Jeroboam sacrificed. He said, he made, he appointed, he offered, he did, he instituted. All of these things come from Jeroboam. Now we know who Jeroboam is. We've met him before. He served underneath Solomon, probably underneath the largest forced labor tribe of Ephraim. Most likely Judah didn't have a lot of people in the forced labor uh, the favoritism that is, is somewhat uh, described. But here, uh, Ephraim, one of the biggest tribes and the biggest land allotments, uh, the strongest tribe of the north. And here, Jeroboam was over the, that tribe of Ephraim where he's born. And he's told by Ahijah that he would be king. You saw this at the end of chapter 11. And here, Ahijah tells him that I'll take you and you shall reign over all that your soul desires and you shall be king over Israel. And if you listen to all that I command you and walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you and will build you a sure house as I built for David and I will give Israel to you. And I will aff, uh, afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. And so we, we know what has happened. The kingdom has now been passed to him. The, the ten tribes has now been passed to him. He is king of the northern kingdom. But God's word specifically through Ahijah was very, very specific. That if you listen, if you follow God's ways, if you... Uh, do what is right in God's eyes, if you keep God's statutes, if you keep God's commandments, then he's going to build him a sure house. Then he's going to keep, uh, you know, be with you and, and build a sure house as I built for David. I'll give Israel to you. So it's quite clear right at the very beginning what Jeroboam needs to be able to do. Now Jeroboam does the exact opposite. That's what we see here. What we see in, uh, in the first uh, verse is that he builds Shechem, the place in which uh, defeat, uh, symbolic of Jeroboam's negotiation power that came as he conquered, where, where Rehoboam came and was going to be anointed as king. And Jeroboam and, and his people came and approached uh, Rehoboam and said, you know, we will serve you. If you lighten our load. And now uh, Jeroboam uh, in the northern kingdom builds his capital city here. That place of defeat. But also not only does he build um, in uh, Shechem. But he also in the hill country is Ephraim. And he lives there. But he also goes out and builds uh, Penuel. Uh, Great parallels between all this time here. uh, Between Gideon. The, the, the good, righteous judge who then dies and his sons, uh, they seek to be able to make Gideon king, but he says, I don't want to be king. My sons and my sons' sons, my grandsons are not going to be king. But there's great parallels between all this time here and Judges chapter 8 and 9. It's good for you to be able to go and uh, talk about this. But uh, Penuel is a, is a city that is actually destroyed by Gideon. 
they don't go and support him as he, he goes to be able to attack the Midianites. And uh, Shechem uh, and Penuel is, is one of the towers that's destroyed and, and brought to the ground. Uh, throughout all this time, there's great parallels to that, that, uh, that, uh, that proverb and that um, uh, parable of, of who is going to reign over us and the vine and the, the trees, but it ends up being the thorns and the brambles who are happy to be able to be reigned over by this. And here there's these parallels between what uh, uh, Gideon's son does and how he comes to the throne and, and how that fights. And so here we see one of the first things that uh, Jeroboam seeks to be able to do is make a kingdom for himself, make him a strong place, a capital city, a place in which is central. And this is where the capital city will be until uh, Omri comes in and he moves it to Samaria. Um, But what he wants to do is he wants to be able to make his house strong. He wants to make his house secure, just as David's house was. But remember what God told him, that only if you listen to him, walk in his ways, do what is right in in, in God's eyes, and keep his commandments, keep his statutes, then God would establish and build his house. But we also see a part of a motive of why Jeroboam is doing all of these things in verses 26 and and 27. We're told, and Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. We see here the author tells us something that is very important and, and, and deeper than merely just actions. We're told, he said in his heart... The Bible often will, will pause and be able to give steep spiritual motives that no one recording history would ever be able to understand. And here, Jeroboam turns within his heart, and we find out why he does all of these things. Again, he's, he's worried about his life, he's concerned, but really he's concerned, he's jealous that he will lose what he has just grabbed hold of. He is now a king with power. And if, he, if they go to Jerusalem to be able to make sacrifices to the Lord at the temple, then, then they will turn back to Rehoboam. That kingdom which is given to him will be snatched out of his hand. Jeroboam, who was given the kingdom by the Lord, is now worried that Rehoboam would be able to take it back. He worries that as they go to Jerusalem, they'll return back to Rehoboam. He might be killed. But notice a couple of things. He goes deep into his own thoughts. He turns to his own heart and his own thoughts and mind. But what did God say? God told him already. Through Ahijah, the prophet, and told him, if you walk in my ways, if you listen, if you obey my commandments... And my statutes, just as David did, I will build you a sure house. I will give Israel to you. But now he's worried that it's going to be snatched out of his hand. 
Israel would be taken out. God can make him king, but he's not sure God can keep him as king. He's worried about retaining this power. But I think what is most disturbing about this is that in his own heart is what drives him to do all that he is about to, we're about to read about. All of these things stem from a sinful heart. It's not based on what God has said, what God has promised, but fear, jealousy, worry, anxiety, something lo- to lose something that is not some- that is his. For it to be taken out of his hand, he's willing to be able to accept the blessing from God and claim his right to be king, but he's worried that our hearts are the exact same way, that our sinful hearts drive our emotions and our actions, our affections, that the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah says. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? And here Jeroboam, wherever he is, sitting in his room, and he's he's said to his own heart. And this is what drives and motivates him to be able to do all these things. Drives him to sin. This sick heart is the same one we have, as Paul writes in Romans chapter 1. The first thing that God hands over as they don't give thanks and and praise and and glory to God in worshiping the creature rather than the creator, the first thing that he hands them over to is the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Who is blessed forever. Amen. This is the first thing that God hands people over to in his wrath and his judgment is their own sinful hearts. And Jeroboam, who did not seek to be able to glorify God and honor God, he sought to be able to lift himself up, worship himself, worship this position. The Lord had told him, that I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. But what he ends up holding on to and grasping for is, is what his heart desires, power, position, not trusting in the Lord. And so often when we think about worship, which is really what this passage is centralized over, It is often the wrong action, the wrong desire that feeds wrong action. When we start asking the wrong questions in the very beginning, we start getting the wrong answers. Because we're, we're seeking to be able to look in all the wrong spaces and spots. And so too, the most dangerous thing is when we start to do that with worship. And time and time again, people have have sought, well, what about how can we be more friendly to those outside who are coming in, who have never stepped foot in a church? How can we make worship more palatable for them? 
And so that we start asking that question, and it's driven from a good heart motive, right? We want more people to hear the gospel. We want more people to, to become Christians. Well, how can we make church more for them? But ultimately, we're asking the wrong question at the very beginning, and therefore we get all the wrong answers at the very end. Why do we gather as a church, and why do we worship God? How do we worship God? It's centered around them. And, and ultimately, we're, it's, it's a question that cannot be answered. Because the Bible says that people are going to hear the gospel, and some it's going to be life and aroma of life, and others it's going to be aroma of death, the same gospel. It's going to have drastically different outcomes. It's the false premise that leads to false worship, and so too with Jeroboam. It's the same thing, this false motive that, that is within his heart, his concern, drives him to be able to make these compromises. This cost of compromises, in the end he wants to hold on to this kingdom that has been given to him. And his choices just lead to compromise after compromise. Because he doesn't glory, uh, glorify God. So what is Jeroboam's solution to this problem, this apparent solution, problem that he says? The first thing he does is he forms idols. He formed idols, golden calves. See this in verse 28 and 29. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people... You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Although we might not be a great scholars of Old Testament history, this story should send all these alarm bells and red lights flashing and saying, Danger, danger. We've heard this before, haven't we? We've seen this story before. The, uh, we'll speak more of it as we get to uh, the golden calf incident in, in Exodus chapter 32 when we go through uh, the book of Exodus in our morning series. So I don't seek to be able to go down that rabbit hole. Uh, but the author really wants us to be able to see this connection. And the, the irony of this whole situation, that the words are almost identical of what Jeroboam tells the people to what was recorded in Exodus chapter 32. In Exodus chapter 32, verse 7 and 8, as the Lord tells Moses, Go down to your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of what I have commanded them, and they have made themselves a golden calf, and worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Almost exactly the same words and the same structure that is found here in Jeroboam's instructions to the people. Notice in Exodus chapter 32 how he says how quickly they moved. And one of Jeroboam's arguments is, well, they've gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Jeroboam mentions they'd go to Jerusalem, particularly to the temple, to make these sacrifices. And here, Jeroboam says they've gone long enough. But we know that it hasn't been a long time. Solomon's reign is about 40 years. It takes him seven years to build the temple. So 33 years, the temple has been there. 
And it's almost immediately, what we get a sense is it's almost immediately since Solomon's death that this battle takes place with Rehoboam. Rehoboam is not crowned king yet. He's going to Shechem to be crowned king. So almost within that 33-year period, now Jeroboam says it's been long enough. You've gone to Jerusalem long enough. And in Exodus, the highlight is how quickly they turned to be able to go worship this. But remember, all of this is building up. We quoted this verse many, many times in, um, when we were looking at uh, Solomon building the temple in Deuteronomy chapter 12, where he says in verse 5, But you shall seek a place the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. That specific place in Jerusalem which God sets apart where the temple is built... And there you shall go to do specific things. What shall they do? They shall go there to bring up burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, your contribution that you present, and your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of the herd of your flock. And Jeroboam says, we've been doing that long enough. 33 years is enough. The period of time is, is 400 or so, 480 years from when they leave Exodus to when they build the temple. They're waiting for this time to be built. The, the whole temple, is, there's the glory that comes down in, in chapter 8. And now Jeroboam says, no, that's good enough. That's all we needed, 33 years. But really what he's telling the people is not what he was told, what we're told his motive as his heart is. Why does he not want them to go? Not because the Lord has commanded him not to go to the temple anymore. The reason he doesn't want them to go is because they, he doesn't want them to get jealous. He doesn't want them to turn and follow Rehoboam. He doesn't want to die. But what he d- tells the people is something quite different from what we know to be true. And again, Jeroboam is doing this all because of his sinful heart. He subtly turns the people away from worshiping God rightly and truly. What does he say? He says, as he sets up these golden calves, that these are the gods. O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Again, we'll talk about this in Exodus chapter 32. It's not that they... The people in, in Exodus 32, after Aaron builds this thing, say, oh, we're just going to worship some false god. They're seeking to worship God, the God in which Yahweh, who has brought them out of the land of Egypt, but they're attributing him to this golden calf. And so, too, Jeroboam does the exact same thing, and he subtly turns them away and says, we're worshiping the same God. This is Yahweh. But notice the subtle how he does it introduces this new method. It's not God's way. Not only that, he subtly does it. He does it against God's commandments, particularly the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself any carved image of any likeness of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath. That is, in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of your fathers and on the children and on the third and fourth generation to those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The issue here is also in the story of Exodus is not merely that they're worshiping these gods in a false way, but they actually make them. 
the whole key in Exodus chapter 32 leading up to Exodus chapter 32 is God has prescribed and, and described his, his blueprint of how he is to be worshipped. They go on to be able to make that after chapter 32, but here he's prescribed a blueprint. He says, this is how you're going to worship me. And then Aaron goes and says, well, let's do it a different way. The highlight, the great sin in Exodus chapter 32 is not so much them worshiping the golden calf. That's the issue. That's an issue. But the primary thing that is highlighted in Exodus chapter 32 is the making of the golden calf, which leads to the worship. But he also then sets up two places. Again, God had set apart Jerusalem for a place for them to be able to build the temple, to go worship them, to offer their sacrifices. And he just says, that doesn't matter. Here's Dan and Bethel. As we looked at the temple in detail, here he does to be able to go uh, build this temple to God's specifications and the place that God had chosen. But here, Jeroboam just sets up two places. Dan's right at the very, very top of Israel. And Bethel's very, very strategic, right near the very bottom. If you were going to Jerusalem, you'd go through Dan. So why not just stop at Dan and make your sacrifices there? But even the author highlights in verse 30 the uniqueness that even people of Israel went as far up to Dan to be able to go worship that golden calf that's placed up there. They went out of their way to be able to go worship that golden calf. I mean, it's very convenient, very helpful for the people of Israel. But often I think that's, that's the issue with a lot of modern thought when we think about worship. Well, how can we make it more convenient? Not only he made golden calves, he made temples. See this in verse 31? He also made temples on high places. Now again, it's interesting. We spend a lot of time looking at the temple which Solomon built. In, in chapter after chapter of, of how he got things, where he got them, how it was built. But here, we just see on oh, Jeroboam built temples. We're not given any details. Jeroboam just makes them. But he also makes them on high places. Again, this is very important. High places become the, the aspect of, of which Solomon in chapter 3 really sought to be able to worship God in a false way. He ends up going to be able to worship God at the altar at the end of chapter 3. But here these high places are how other nations worship God. Not only in chapter in verse five of Deuteronomy chapter five, where he, uh, in Deuteronomy twelve five, where he says, "You shall worship God in this place that He sets apart." In Deuteronomy chapter, in the verses before, they're told, "You shall surely destroy all the places of the nations whom you shall uh, dispossess, serve their gods, on the high mountains, on the hills, under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and their burnt." And burn their ashram with fire. You shall top down their carved images of their gods and destroy the name of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. And yet this is exactly what Jeroboam is seeking to be able to do. There's another interesting thing to be able to look at. Last week I mentioned that it's interesting to see how a king relates to the prophet is often a gauge that we can see as we go through First and Second Kings. 
Another thing, a relationship that we can see is the king and his relationship to high places. Often this is a, a barometer of how a king responds to God's word. Now they're often intertwined, but it's something for us to be able to keep our minds on. Not only he built golden calves, he, he uh, built uh, temples, he also appointed priests. Verse 31, you build high places on temples in high places. He appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the uh, the Levites. Now this is, again, very important. He appoints these priests that are not from Levites. Remember Uzzah in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, he reaches out, touches the ark. One of the reasons he does is because they're not carrying it in God's prescribed ways. He's on a cart like other people would carry their gods, and yet it should be through poles, and it should be a certain branch of the Levite tree. But one of the things that is clearly is not only God prescribes how he is to be worshipped, but also who is to do what aspect of worship, and particularly the priests were to come and set apart from a certain thing. You see this throughout Exodus, uh, throughout uh, uh Leviticus and other aspects, but Leviticus, Exodus chapter 30, 28, spells it quite clearly. Then you bring near to you Adam, uh, Aaron, your brother, and his sons from him, from among the people of Israel, to serve me as priests. See here, Aaron and a slither of people are to be able to serve God as priests. Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all the skillful whom you have filled with the spirit of skill. And they shall make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. So one thing that is clear is not only the temple in which he is to worship, but also the way in which God is to be worshipped through the priesthood. That they are set apart. Now we can go down more rabbit holes here. I'm trying to avoid them. But here God appoints priests to be able to serve. And Jeroboam completely does away with this method as well. But actually in Second Chronicles, we actually find out that Jeroboam didn't merely just have, he, he was looking out and said, okay, we're the Levites to be able to serve. All, we don't have any Levites. Well, we've got to be able to have people to serve in the temple. We actually see he, he directly opposes God's word. In Second Chronicles chapter 11, we find out, and Levites left their custom lands and their holdings and came to Judah and Jerusalem because Jeroboam and his sons cast them out from serving as priests of the Lord. So he casts them out and says, you can't serve the Lord. So they end up going to Judah. And he appointed his own priests for the high places and the goat idols and the calves that he had made. See it again later in verse 13 when the warning, you have not driven out, have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the peoples of other lands? Again, they're seeking to be able to worship God like all these other lands and be able to bring them in. The last thing that he does is he appoints feasts. See this in verse 33. Jeroboam appointed feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in, Judah, was in Judah. He offered sacrifices on the altar, so he did. In Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. In the place in Bethel, the priests and the high places that he had made. Again, it seems like Jeroboam has just come in and thrown everything out 
Exodus is, is starts as we're looking at at the moment with the, the Feast of the Passover, the beginning of the year in Nisan, what's called Nisan, the 14th day of the month. But also the Feast of Booze, which was to happen in the 7th month. Leviticus chapter 23 spells that out clearly. On the 15th day of the 7th month, in the 7 days, the Feast of Booths. But Jeroboam clearly doesn't merely just to be able to bring over those. He says, we need something unique. We can't do it on the first, first month. We can't do it on the seventh month. Well, let's do it on the eighth. And the author highlights that by pointing out just like the hat in Judah. And he seeks to be able to take and make his own feast days. Having some similarity to that religion in which they shared before underneath David and Solomon, underneath Moses' law but somewhat twist and distort it. We find out where he gets this date from in verse 33 in our final verse. And he went up to the altar and made it in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month in the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast to the people of Israel and went up to the altar and make offerings. So again, where does he get all this from? Merely his own heart doesn't seek to be able to follow God's ways and his law and his word. There's a lot to be able to try and unpack here. But what's the issue? The issue is that God had given them commandments about how he was to be worshipped. Where they were to worship him. Who was to serve in the temple. Special feasts to be able to remember what God had done. For his people. And Jeroboam throws them all out. He makes up his own way. Now it's an important principle that we see here. That we've mentioned before. And that's called the regulative principle of worship. Which basically says that we only worship God in the way that he has prescribed in his word. We only worship God in the way that he has prescribed in his word. There's another principle that says the normative principle. And that says we only worship God, we can worship God in any way as long as it's not forbidden in God's word. And the normative principle is really quite broad because there's lots of things that are not forbidden in the word. But what we see is God specifically prescribes how he is to be worshipped. As far as I can read, there's nowhere that says that no one else can serve as priests. But he does specifically set apart a priest to serve underneath Aaron and his sons. He does not say that um, different aspects there, you shall not make any more feasts. But he does set apart specific feasts, seven, in which they are to celebrate. But the regulative principle explains how God seeks to be able to be worshipped according to his word. What is told to Jeroboam specifically? That if you listen, if you do what is right in my own eyes, God's own eyes, if you keep my statutes, you keep my commandments... I would define worship 
it's a hard thing to be able to describe, but that it's God-centered, spiritually, scripturally regulated, a covenantal engagement of the covenant community, emphasizing the reverence, centrality of God's word and his sacraments, the transformative impact on the believers in a public, solemn gathering. And here, the very, ish, the very first thing God-centered has been thrown out the window for Jeroboam. Worship seeks to be able to uphold what he wants. That faulty flaw of his heart at the very beginning that says, I don't want people to turn away. I don't want people to go back to Rehoboam. I want that power. I want that kingdom. I want that nation. I want a sure house. But God-centered really means God-directed. The worship is something that we do where God is the focus of what we do. The worship is something we give to God. Uh, The famous verse that we often think about when we think about worship is in John uh, 4, verse uh, 23. Here's this discussion that Jesus is having with this woman at the well, and she's talking exactly about this issue that Jeroboam began. Well, you say you should worship on this mountain, and we say we should worship on this mountain. Well, who is correct? Well, Jesus says, well, the people who obey God's word are correct. Judah was correct, but a time is coming. He says, the hour is coming and is now here where True worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. Now we often focus on that, the the worshiping of spirit and truth, but there's something else in this verse that is really important for us to understand. That the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The spirit and truth is how we do it. But the object of our worship is God the Father through Christ the Son, empowering us through the Spirit working in us. And so, too, when we think about worship, often we think so self-centeredly. One of the questions that we often ask, what did you think of church today? How did you like worship? What was your favorite hymn? And often this is how people decide what church they seek to be able to go to. Well, I want a church that offers these type of things. I want a church that makes me feel good. I want a church that um, whatever that is, it's centered around us. I don't like that style of worship. Often what that means is, is about me, me, me. But worship is all about him. Glory to God. What does God want? How does God want to be worshipped? And when we sit down on Sunday morning as we're preparing for worship, how often do we actually center our minds and say, I'm here to worship you. I'm here to give all glory and honor to him. 
the one who made the heavens and the earth, the one who placed the stars in the sky, the one who formed the mountains, who filled the seas, who sustains my life, who saved my soul, who holds my inheritance in heaven, who purchased and gave me peace through reconciliation, the one who, and we think about him, the prayer and praise adoration is all given and directed to him. There's a great song. It has a, a terrible name and literally quite terrible hymn name. It begins by saying, God, the all terrible. That's the title of the hymn. Now, we, we often think about terrible as something bad, but here something that is that fills us with with awe and, and trembling that even people as they meet angels who merely stand in God's presence, are driven either to their knees to be able to worship them, and the angel says, do not worship me, or they're driven to their knees in fear that their death has come. And this hymn speaks of God in all of his glory, God the all-terrible, King who ordainest, great winds thy clarions, lightnings thy sword, show forth thy pity on high where thou reignest. Give us peace in our time, O Lord. Lord, the omnipotent, mighty avenger, watching, invisible, judging, unheard. Save us in mercy, O save us from danger. Give us peace in our time, O Lord. God, the all-merciful, earth has forsaken. Thy ways of blessedness light thy word. Bid not thy wrath in the terrors awaken. Give us peace. In our time, O Lord, God, the all-righteous one, man hath defiled thee, yet to eternity standeth thy word. Falsehood and wrong shall not tarry beside thee. Give us peace in our time, O Lord, God, the all-wise. By the fire that thy chastening, earth shall to freedom and truth be restored. Though the thick darkness through the thick darkness thy kingdom is hastening. Thou wilt give peace in thy time, O Lord. That when we come and gather together in worship, we come and direct all of our worship unto God, worshiping Him for His glory and His honor. There's benefits we have as we sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another But that benefit is as we're directing them to God, we're worshiping and encouraging one another through these songs as we focus on God and what he has done and accomplished for us and through us through his son, Jesus Christ, and applied to us through his spirit. And so Jeroboam seeks to be able to merely just make his own way. Time after time, just compromise after compromise, thinking he's doing the right thing for himself or his people, whatever, But yet what he's doing is merely just not worshiping God in God's way. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m., and 6 p.m. for his glory and his gospel.